We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're exploring architecture competitions and if the process can help make projects better. Our guests in this episode are Aaron Peters from the Queensland-based firm Vokes and & Peters and Andrew Scott from the New South Wales-based firm Panov Scott. Aaron and Andrew worked together on a submission for the 2017 National Gallery of Victoria's Annual Architecture Commission. They share with us the benefits of collaboration, working on a two-stage competition, and how working on competitions can feed other work even when a practice doesn't win. I'll now pass over to Sam McQueenie, who is an Imagine Committee member based in Queensland, who also works for Aaron at Vokes and Peters. Let's jump in. So I'm, I'm here with Aaron Peters of Folks and Peters, a studio based in Brisbane, Queensland, and Andrew Scott based in New South Wales at the practice, Panoff Scott. G'day. Hello. Thanks for having us. That's all right. We're here today to kind of explore architecture competitions with the overarching question, how do architecture competitions make projects better and do they? So how did, how did you two end up collaborating together on this project, you know, two practices in different parts of the country deciding to work together. How did this sort of unfold? I think I might have initiated it, but trouble is I can't remember why I wanted to do the competition in the first place. And really the only part of it that I can remember is that I was keen to do it with another practice, it being, a, I think, an exercise that I imagine would be quite enjoyable. It just seemed like a great opportunity to, to get to know Andrew and Anita a little bit better. And we, we were pals before that, but it seemed like a good opportunity just to cement that relationship and go on an exciting journey of architecture together. Is that how you remember it, Andrew? It is, it is, absolutely. I think, I think you know, we've, we've known each other for a fair few years now and the competition and the, and the project is going back a few years now as well. My recollection is also a little bit hazy, but... I think you. I think you did. You reached out, and and we were we were excited about the opportunity to to collaborate. I think possibly even more so than the commission itself. I think we've had we've had a little bit of experience with different types of collaborations. Some of them within the kind of competition framework. Some of them within different other types of frameworks. And I think when you're when you're operating in in practice. There are certain practices that kind of come from a position of curiosity. That's kind of kind of the driver, how they can interact in different ways with the world around them and also with other people. And the, the idea of collaboration is, is an incredibly rich way of, of engaging with curiosity in the world, seeing how other people do what we do as well. And it kind of... This idea of collaboration, whether it's within a competition framework or not, it, it invigorates. And, and I think, you know, if I if I remember it rightly, it was kind of it was a very very busy time. All times are busy times. Um, you reached out, Aaron. <laughs> Absolutely, and it was for us as well. And so it was kind of it was an opportunity where we kind of snatched some moments, I think, from the everyday of, of practice. And and when collaboration is good, those moments kind of are magical. It felt it felt like each time we opened up because it was primarily primarily via email in terms of how we worked together. Each time we opened an email or we got something from out, it was like you know a big smile on your face. And it kind of you know that a collaboration is doing what it could possibly do when that's the reaction. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess Aaron, you made the choice to approach them based on it being the NGV competition. Was it that competition in particular? that sort of piqued your interest or had you just been looking for a chance to to collaborate with Andrew and Anita for some time? And did the NGV competition sort of end up being like the right platform, you think, to explore those ideas together? It certainly was the right platform for a collaboration. I, I, don't, I don't really recall exactly why 
I chose that particular competition, but I do remember that a factor was that it was being run by Andrew McKenzie and it was a reputable competition that had been established for a little while. There was clearly an ambition there to make a building and and that's always a major motivation for our practice is we're, we're interested in ideas, of course, but we're, I think, primarily motivated by the idea of actually constructing a built artifact at the end of that process. And so that, that I think, was a major draw card for getting involved in the competition. Um, we knew it would be well run. And I think probably the final point was that it was a relatively small building um, or commission at the end of the competition. So it wasn't as if we were trying to win a competition that would radically transform the nature of our practice. You know, we wouldn't have to hire five people to be able to complete the project or enter into a joint venture with a bigger practice or any of those sorts of things. It sort of felt like something that could be quite enjoyable, short and sharp, and a, a forum for collaboration and ideas. Yeah, what are, you, what are your thoughts, Andrew, on whether that was the right kind of platform for you to collaborate? Like the NGV competition in particular, you know, it's a small-scale pavilion. It's not radically different from the scale of work that each practice does, but it, it in terms of the time frame and, you know, making things happen, it's all very quick. You know, do you think that that scale of work was, was a good place to test those ideas with another sort of design-oriented practice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the, the kind of the, the pragmatics of that competition framework allows you to kind of, you know, to do that dance, <laughs> you know, the, the two-practice dance where you kind of come together. And it's kind of because it is so short and sharp, it's it's kind of just run on, on kind of enthusiasm and, as we said, as a kind of curiosity and just seeing what might eventuate. I, th- I think the other thing about that, that particular competition, which is interesting, is that it is two-stage, and so it has that kind of open EOI process. And then you know, we, we were lucky enough in this instance to to be shortlisted and go through to that second stage, but then unlucky enough not, not to actually be selected to have the, the project built. So this is kind of an example of the, of the lasting offering of, of this competition and it's really for me about collaboration and about getting to know how you guys uh, how Oaks and Peters work a little bit and, and what kind of eventuated out of that that dance and you sound lucky Andrew but we kind of fell on our sword in the end uh, I think uh, I we, we were quite excited about it's, it's probably worth telling the story now just to get it out of the way but so we the first stage of the competition we were shortlisted on the basis of an entry that we were quite excited about which was essentially to make a tower of of timber with a net uh, suspended inside it and that net would be filled with helium balloons so Somewhere between being shortlisted and presenting to the jury for the second stage of the competition, we we figured out that the, the environmental impact of what we were proposing was was significantly worse than we, we might have imagined. And so that kind of led to a rapid rethink of how the concept might work. And I have to say, we I, I don't think we found anything that quite captured the joy of the original concept and the jury agreed. And, and I think it, probably the most amusing part of that journey that we went on was that it was triggered, uh, I believe, in the, the airport lounge for Andrew and Anita, who had just happened to be sitting waiting for their plane. And there was an episode of Home and Away. Yeah, okay, it was one of those. And two of the characters actually had a conversation about the, <laughs> the environmental impact of helium balloons and uh, I remember I must have received an email or a text message saying, I, you know, I think the game's up. Home and away have turned. <laughs> so anyway, we, we presented to the jury somewhat sheepishly for the second stage, having realised that this probably wasn't our year. But uh, having said all of that, I, you know, in many ways it was kind of, it was an equally worthwhile journey to to cement that relationship in terms of the the objectives that we had at the start going into it i think we still got everything out of the competition that we had hoped apart from a building and that was kind of fine too you know it, it was still a really invigorating and, and fun journey to go on yeah and I, I think that the other you know that that dance kind of demonstrated that there was an ease and there was a fit 
and since that time we've we've done a couple of EOI expression of interest and kind of tender processes that haven't really gone anywhere. We're about to embark kind of next week on a on a project together down here in Sydney. So I think it kind of it was just about about getting that that kind of comfort. And also it was kind of it was the first time in a way where I've seen within the process of the the commission of the project the folly of the design. And, and, and in some way, that was kind of it was liberating to, to actually start to have, or, or through collaboration, for that to become become very evident, and also to become comfortable with it. You know, so, sometimes the idea that you are so excited about and that is driving everything forward, the moment where you just turn around and go, actually, it's actually not that good, or there's a, there's a fundamental problem with it. So what do, we, what do you do? I thought you guys were great in that in the process of kind of enabling the the silliness of, of the idea as well. And I I seem to recall one particular exchange where we we had settled on the idea of these silly balloons, lots of colourful balloons that we could release into the air and kill marine and um, other wildlife with. And and I I think I had sent a sketch of just sort of a big box full of coloured balloons that I'd coloured in with my colouring pencils. And then you guys came back with the most exquisite 3D model of what that structure might look like, really thoughtfully put together. And all of a sudden this kind of silly idea had been encased in something really quite poetic and beautiful and, and serious. And, you know, that, that, that I remember was a pretty major milestone in the collaboration for me because it was sort of a realisation that, oh, yes, I don't, I'm not going to have to drive this. You know, there, there is, I'm not the only person at the wheel here. And not only does that mean that I don't have to make all the running, but it's actually there are going to be ideas that come out of this process that are better than I could have thought of. It was a, re- it was a really lovely exchange in that way and, and sort of a great revelation and affirmation of the, the value of, of collaboration. Yeah, yeah, and that, that, that was mirrored on our side as well. As kind of as I said, said earlier on, it's because it, because I mean we've both experienced, I'm sure, kind of collaborations that go the other way, where it really is a, a push, and just it becomes quite magical when it's the opposite, when when the, it comes from externally, and and this thing starts to have its own own momentum. Kind of, it's an interesting example as well, perhaps about the kind of the seductiveness of the architectural representation. And how that can actually kind of—I mean—we use that process with with clients, with councils, with general public, absolutely in terms of advocating for for the idea about how a place might be transformed. But it can also have a negative, like like we did—we we lavished that time, we made this beautiful object, and then it kind of attracts the. It, it became the vehicle for the idea, which had its own kind of trajectory. And then we realised the idea was fundamentally flawed, but we already had this trajectory, and so we just kind of continued along. It's kind of it's an interesting thing about how you treat architectural representation and the importance of that, and not being seduced by it as as the generator. Um, I think there's an interesting lesson there for us. Yeah. Okay. So I'm. Um... It ended up being a flawed idea, but, you know, and knowing that this is going to be a built object at some point is, is kind of an important part of this competition. Do you still think it's kind of important to explore those ideas, even though they may or not end up getting built? Like, or even do you think it's worthy of engaging in architectural ideas competitions in order to kind of further your thoughts or push ideas that you want to explore in practice? It's a good question. It's like it's a it's a big question. I think it is it is one of the major frameworks for freedom of expression and potential generation of innovation within the practice of architecture. It's also a mechanism that can be very exploitative of architecture firms. I, I personally would prefer things are in terms of the way we run our practice, that things are actually explored of our own volition, like innovation is actually generated, collaboration is undertaken outside of the competition framework because then, then we have more control over where the idea will actually run. I mean, one of the, one of the quotes which I love, it's not really a quote, it's kind of like a, mis, a misquote of Reverend Krulhaus, 
when he was doing a national bibliotheque competition. I think it's kind of embedded in SML Excel if you wanted to find it. But he talks about this idea about in that competition, there's a moment where you you either want to pursue the, the project and the commission and the competition win, or you want to pursue the idea. And those, if, even within the freedom of the competition process, those things aren't always aligned. So it still it still provides some limit. So that's kind of a, a, a meandering answer, perhaps. No, it's great. <laughs> I think I have a similar experience to you, Andrew, in that we're we're incredibly fortunate to have a practice where we're frequently able to to build ideas and to to find expression for different urges and thoughts in our in our regular project work. I do I do think there is. There, there definitely is a role, though, for competitions as a forum that is unbounded by, you know, the limitations that might apply to a sort of regular commercial practice, and that definitely does, I think, have value. In all all architectural projects, I think you would agree, Andrew, are always a compromise. You know, they're they're a work of many many hands, not just a client and their architect, but the limitations that are placed upon the practice and project by, you know, statutory authorities, approvals, all of those sorts of things, the sort of realities of the building industry. And very often, you know, there are, there are certain ideas that we probably discount from the outset because we realise that they bring added complexity to a project or they simply aren't affordable or, you know, whatever it might be. So although I don't often feel the urge to to practice in that way, you know, I, I, I am someone who's quite comfortable and gets great satisfaction from practising in a conventional manner. I think this, you know, this competition was a reminder that sometimes it is wonderful just to, to take the handbrake off and go flying over the edge, grasping a handful of helium balloons, kind of hoping that <laughs> hoping that you'll reemerge. You know, there, there's definitely a place for that. There's also a danger, and I think Sam, you'll probably guide us back in this direction as well. Where you know, I think the idea of competitions becoming more commonplace or becoming something that you might have to rely on to sustain your practice, particularly if it's a small practice, that can definitely be a double-edged sword. Mm. There are plenty of practices around the world who exist because of competitions, so they get a start because of a competition, but there are also far, far greater numbers of practices who spend countless hours entering and not winning competitions, having their intellectual property property essentially giving away their intellectual property to people who aren't paying them yeah. for, the, for the benefit of those ideas or well, basically just, you know, spending a huge amount of their life and energy on competitions that aren't really aren't ever going to go anywhere. Yeah. So, you know, that, that it, it's not something that I feel like I've made my mind up on, but I, I have to say I am glad that we're not in a situation where we are frequently having to win work by a competition and the pressures of that would place on our practice in order to do so. Yeah. The, um, the NGV competition has been running for a number of years relatively successfully. Do you think the kind of the EOI and two-stage format where you are shortlisted and given some remuneration for that work, is that something that you think has been successful? And what do you think makes a good sort of design competition, like what format works in order to avoid some of the potentially exploitative tropes in the competition format? Well, I think, I think first off about the, the first question that you have to ask is, is it better to have an open competition or an invited competition? Yeah. You know, they, they tend to be the sort of two main genres of competition. The great thing about an open competition is that you can get wildcard entries, but it also generally means that you're wasting a hell of a lot more people's time in opening it up to, you know, all and sundry. So again, pros and cons, whereas an invited competition is often more attractive for us as a more established practice because we know that the client is serious about engaging, you know, one of a small number of practices. So, the, you know, the odds are better in that sense and very often it also comes with some sort of remuneration for your time, which I think is important, but it's exclusionary. So, look, I, I don't know that there'll ever be a perfect model. The great thing about the NGV, as I said, was that 
because it's such a small project and it's also a two-stage competition format, it means that your initial investment can be relatively low. And once it gets more serious and you reach the second stage and then essentially it becomes invited because there's a shortlisting uh, and there's remuneration involved, then you can make a call about how hard you want to pursue this project. So in that, in that sense, I thought it was a very good competition format. But, you know, my, my feeling is still that competitions are, are kind of wonderful and awful and you, you have to make an informed and considered decision about whether to engage in that. Yeah. And at different points in your career, those that kind of value proposition will shift. When you're, you know, you don't have kids, you're unattached or you've you know, got plenty of time on your hands and you're sort of full of beans about making buildings or the possibility of making buildings. And, you know, that's very different from where Stuart and I are at in our practice at the moment, where we try not to let architecture rule our lives. Andrew, what are your thoughts? I think you kind of, you asked a question about the, the value of the outcome of, of the, of the NGV competition, which immediately kind of made me ask how do you actually assess the value of the outcome, what what is the outcome? Is the outcome the commission, the building? In which case, I think uh, people can make their own judgment on the varying success of of the different commissions. The other kind of potential value is is the kind of the culture of architecture at the NGV, the the, the way in which it becomes part of the experience of that gallery, the way in which it can has the capacity to physically reach a, a, a great number of, of people because architecture, uh, you know, the way in which most buildings are, are built means that most people don't get to engage in most works of architecture other than the visual representation of it. And so I think the fact that there is this kind of each year, this on the years it's running, there is this new commission that exists and people can visit and experience it. I think that's that's an amazing offering and there's huge value in that in terms of the outcome. And so I think the competition process is is a great offering in that regard. And if you look at who's, who's actually been awarded the commission year on year, it's generally kind of outlier practices. There are some exceptions to it. But so I, I think there's great value in that as well because, you know, we haven't, yeah, kind of touched on this idea about competition as the capacity to step up, step across, step into a new realm, whether that's emerging practice, as, as Aaron said, or whether it's uh, an established practice forging new ground in terms of building building types, because that's, that's always a, a kind of a struggle in terms of practice to actually do something that you haven't done before in terms of the the public and the client body perception of, of who you are. Competition's a great vehicle in that regard. So I think there's there's some there's a comment there around value, um, and I think my, my kind of my personal judgment is on, on aggregate in terms of that kind of question about value of the outcome versus the potential exploitative nature of the of the competition as a as an offering of architects' times. I think NGV comes down very much for the the value. At, at the outset, and it you know, probably makes sense because that's why we actually engaged in it. There, there are other other competitions that don't meet that threshold. I think you know if this is if this is a wider conversation about competition, we haven't really defined what that is as well. You know, maybe we've been talking about kind of open and invited, but these are design-based competitions where there's a jury that selects based on the the proposition. There's also this kind of this expression of interest and tender process. Where there, there still is a jury, it's much more it's much more murky about who that jury actually is because it's often articulated, and the assessment is is this idea about capability and experience as well as potentially this methodology, and and that's actually how the majority of public buildings are procured or, or in Australia these days. So you know maybe. It's kind of less sexy than a design competition, absolutely, in terms of talking about it. But it might be an interesting thing to broaden that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because a lot of what you know you have to provide is the capability to to service the project upon winning the competition, you know, the fees, and things like that. All of the uglier parts um, that come alongside the sexier design outcome. Uh, have either of you or Aaron been involved in a sort of juror capacity or? Yeah, there, was, okay. there was a competition when we were at um, university where we um, 
we set up the competition. It was kind of like third year. We decided to be the jury of the competition as well. And then we also decided to award ourselves <laughs> the commission <laughs> as part of the competition. So that, that's, that's yeah. probably a good example. And then it went on to be built. It was, it was a great success. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It sounds it sounds like it went well. Yeah, congratulations on the um, against the odds well victory there. Well done. Thank you so much. Maybe it's a good time to talk about like lessons learned from the the competition, like collaboration with each other. How do you think working on the the competition has helped inform any further entries or projects within the office? Like whether this be the ideas that were explored or potential collaboration with us on another project that's coming up. Um, we've had a stab at a couple of other things since. I think it, it certainly gave me confidence that we could work with Panel Scott very effectively. So we've, we've submitted a couple of EOIs with, with no success, sadly. Andrew wasn't on the jury for those ones, so <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't get too far. And, yes, we're, we're sort of about to embark on a, a small residential commission as well with, with Andrew and Anita. I'm flying down there next week to, to see them. So, so in that sense, it gave me a lot of confidence that collaborations could work, and and that since evolved into us collaborating on a number of projects with other practices as well. So we're we're presently delivering a for what for us is quite a large project, a parkland project here in Brisbane. We're collaborating with Weinberg Wang. We're building a library at Ambucker Heads at the moment that's on site with Susanna and Nicholas. And we've, we've actually done a number of collaborations with Susanna and Nicholas and the Neighbourhood Centre, a, a Sky Lounge for Singapore Airlines. So we've, we've sort of got a bit of a history of doing that. But it, I, I think in, in a way I'd, I'd always assumed that collaborations, well, to me, collaborations sort of reminded me of being assigned a group at university to do a you know a book report or something and invariably that would always end up being a quite painful process where one or two people of the group of five would do the entire project and the other three would act as a ball and chain and i, I can't say that encouraged me to to seek collaboration early on mm. But the more the more experience that I gain of working with other practices, the more I realise that there's such a incredible store of, of energy and excitement and inspiration that, that can come from that. And now it's really become, I would say, a fairly ingrained part of the way in which folks and Peters pursues projects. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Andrew? Has the competition kind of helped inform any other kind of further EOI projects, whether this be like your relationship with another practice or, you know, a method that you developed. You talked earlier about emailing as a, a platform only because you were in separate states, I suppose. Like, do you find sitting down together and using a pencil and having the capacity to be in the room to be necessary potentially anymore? No. Not, not, it's, it's kind of it's an interesting one. It, it's there's great benefit in it. It's not necessary in any any way, shape, or form these days. I mean, there's been a fundamental society-wide shift, I think, in the importance of physical proximity, where it went for something went from something which was essential, speaking in very generalised terms here, to something which was potentially harmful, and so that. that precipitated a, a shift but that, that was already starting to happen more generally you know we we've we've built buildings in the blue mountains in melbourne where there's kind of the, uh, recently where there's great distances involved there isn't that capacity to, to actually be physically proximate and it's worked it's worked actually quite quite brilliantly in terms of the outcome it relies obviously on everyone working in the same direction and the, the period of different forms of communication that we we can engage with these days. So I think, I mean, the way we're running our practice at the moment, where we're less in the city of Sydney and, and more kind of just north of it, we have people who we collaborate with in the city as part of our practice, and that is con conducted on, on Zoom and, and email and Slack and all these things allow us to to happily to happily collaborate in that way and it's actually it, it's quite effective so so that that's kind of maybe the question about need there's there's nothing having said all that there's, there's absolutely nothing like actually being in a room together 
and picking up on all the nuances of, of body language and excitement and temperature and all those kinds of things and actually sharing a drawing as well but that, that can also be facilitated in different ways is there a particular project or competition that you've worked on recently that that you're excited about you know in terms of whether it be just your practice or a collaboration that you've had yeah yeah absolutely that's kind of we're, constantly kind of excited and invigorated about the projects in which we do. One of them which is very much present for us at the moment is, and maybe there's a good segue to talk about the competition program, which is fairly idiosyncratic to Sydney in terms of this kind of being a nationwide broadcast. The City of Sydney for a number of years now, so our council has, has instigated a design competition alternates process is, is what we call it and it was established by the city of sydney's planning department spearheaded by graham yarn and it's it's a set of policy essentially that was established that enabled developers to have additional density or additional height one or the other if they actually engaged in a competition process that would enable design excellence so it's all about facilitating design excellence. It's about raising design culture at a pragmatic level, at the level of the city. And and that's been quite incredible. It's now, it's, I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a crazy idea to actually ask every developer over a certain threshold. So the threshold's kind of size or monetary base. If they want addition, additional height, additional density, then they need to engage with three or more architects and, and run a competition with all of the kind of the time and the cost associated with that. And there was there was a lot of pushback by developers earlier on in the process. But now it's been going for quite a while now. It's just accepted. And so people who want to work within the city of Sydney Council and want that kind of benefit engage in this process. And so that 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 kind of legacy policy has had a profound impact on emerging practice and established practice in Sydney. Um, and, and also on increasing design quality, I think. And so we've benefited from that, as a lot of our, our colleagues have in this area. And we've been involved in those kind of competitions from fairly early on in our practice. So one of them is a, was a, a project for in, in King's Cross. It's kind of a, a city block there next to the, 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 the fountain the Bourbon Hotel. And it's got a, got a, it's got a wonderful history. It's got a wonderful character. It's got a wonderful kind of urban condition as well. And we were invited by Tompkins Alaka Greer, a local practice, to collaborate with them on that competition a couple of years back now, 2019, and, and we ended up winning that competition. We ended up going through, we got the DA at the end of last year, so the development approval. And, um, and now we're just about to... To commence construction documentation of that project, and so I think that's that's a totally different scale. It's kind of a sixty-five million dollar development. We're we're invited as the emerging practice, and Tonkins are like we're as the lead practice. So inherent within that framework is is quite set roles, which we're kind of working within. But one of the interesting things about that particular competition, from the city's point of view, is that they actually mandated that there should be five buildings and that the emerging practice should be responsible for the design of two of those buildings. So the city defined who would do what within that framework. And so that that's that's an amazing, amazing kind of offering in terms of our engagement. And the city's experimented in, in different ways about how they can enable emerging emerged and international practices to start to engage with this competition process and they're kind of constantly tinkering with the policy so that it becomes more nuanced and each each year on year it becomes more effective as well it's kind of so, so i mean to answer your question that's that's one thing that we have within the practice alone which is which is really exciting to, to work at that kind of scale as a small practice um, whether we're still emerging is kind of up for, for debate but there's, there's kind of, yeah, I, there's a capacity for, for that competition to span from something like this to something like the NGV and to us they're kind of two different poles and they're, they're entire, entirely different in terms of the way in which the practice engages with them. Andrew, that, the design competition program 
that you were just mentioning in, in Sydney, we kind of look at that from afar and all seems very, very exciting and interesting. And, and I suppose we're, we're looking at it slightly longingly. Do, do you feel that it, in, in terms of the actual built outcomes, not necessarily the project um, or competition that you were personally involved in, but just generally in terms of built outcomes and that stated objective of trying to raise design standards, do you feel that it, it, there is a tangible uh, improvement in, in design standards on account of that approach? Is, is it something that I know it's difficult to measure, but is your sense that that is and has been an effective tool for, for raising standards? I mean, that's, that's the essential question, isn't it? You know, has it actually worked? I mean, I, my, my response is yes, fundamentally. It's, 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 but it can only be a personal judgment because, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's what, what could have eventuated otherwise? You know, how low can the bar be in terms of built environment outcomes? And I think we all know that that bar could be pretty fundamentally low. I, I think it can, it can only be good in terms of what it's doing for the expectation on the part of people who build our cities. What what do they need to actually do? So that it's not it's not just a kind of a, a monetary reward. There, there's actually you know it, it, there's, a, there's kind of there's a whole other question there about about value and, and what the outcome is. But I think I think the other thing that it does and people like. Richard Johnson here in in Sydney talks about what the Opera House did for Sydney, not just as the built outcome, because you know we can't really talk about competitions without talking about that example, whether whether it is an outlier, so it doesn't represent competitions at all. I'm not sure if we can take that position. I think it has to be an example. But Richard talks about what that did to the culture of building in Sydney. It just elevated it in this kind of fundamental way. And not just about form making, not just about iconic building. It's actually about plywood technology and how to do off form concrete, and how, to, how to make a piazza, you know, all, all of those kinds of things which become embedded in how all architects work or all building practitioners work. So I. And the Opera House competition is kind of a great reminder of that a competition is also only as good as its jury, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, my understanding is that Utsun's scheme was, you know, picked out of the trash bin by Saren and a, a, appearing in the jury room a, a day or so late after the deliberations had begun. You know, it could have been, I, I've never really looked at the, the alternate schemes that might have got up, but it could have been a very different outcome. I mean, I think there's a, there was a great exhibition a couple of years back with all of the alternate schemes. Some of them were, some of them were cracking. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great story, absolutely. But so, I mean, the, you know, that, that culture goes into into kind of building building practitioners. But the thing that I think the other benefit that we're seeing in terms of that competition policy here in Sydney is is this kind of, and the city's obviously working with it at the moment. They're actually they're allowing new practice they're allowing emerging practice to, to actually kind of make that jump into that large scale and i think that that has a i mean speaking personally we're, we're benefiting from it and we're appreciative of it but it has a profound impact on ideas and how they how they actually work at the at the larger scale at that larger urban scale and it facilitates a, a facilitates a bit more risk taking at that scale as well, and I think you know we we perhaps share the understanding that for a good building to eventuate, there must be a capacity for risk to be taken, on, especially on the part of the client. And you know, fundamentally, what's more risky as a procurement process than the competition for the client? Yeah, absolutely. It um, sort of each each object as is with a lot of commissions ends up being a, a one of one you know they have to trust that you know how to build this thing even though you've never built it before just kind of kind of interesting in terms of bringing it back to the ngv competition this this is insistence to include emerging practice do you think that model could be replicated 
easily? Is it advisable to do that in other areas? Yeah, I, I think so. There's research around these questions about the success or otherwise of the City of Sydney policy. And, and as it goes on, as it gets more fine-tuned, as there are more and more built outcomes, like I, I don't know if you've had a capacity to, to kind of go and experience the AMP quarter down at, on Circular Quay in Sydney. If, if you do get a chance, then I kind of highly recommend it, especially as it kind of starts to become more and more open. That was a, a collaboration of, of a number of, of emerged and emerging practices. And it's, it's, it's a phenomenal piece of city-making. So it really is... It's brilliant. So as, as these kind of exemplar projects become more and more part of the public domain, as that research starts to bed in and actually show that what, what that process can do, then that, I mean, that's an example. There are other examples, absolutely. Then, then you can start to advocate um, within different jurisdictions for the benefit of the outcome. And then, you know, Brisbane Council, there can be representations, there can be representations in other places. Hopefully it becomes something which has a kind of an international standing and it becomes a, a more generalised model. But, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not kind of like a, a scholar of competitions, but, you know, whether there are other policies that embed and make essential the competition process is a, is a kind of interesting question. I mean, there's the Belgian Open Core, which is another kind of, I mean, maybe people look at Sydney with envy. I mean, we look at that with envy. That, that's quite phenomenal in terms of what the Barnes government, government architect established with that, with that process. And the, the benefit of that is, is quite phenomenal in terms of design quality. I think Andrew raised a really interesting point earlier with respect to the conservatism of, of the, the, the building industry and the ability to, of competitions to potentially push standards forward. You know, one example in Brisbane, I think, would be the James Street precinct, where it's not a, a sort of uh, precinct that was led by uh, competitions, but what it is 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 a, a retail precinct where a handful of very good architects, primarily led by Richards and Spence, who are local Brisbane architects, and a small group of developers have rejuvenated this area using architecture as the kind of buttress for that the place making and there's a very distinctive style there is definitely great value placed on the, the quality of the design outcomes and, and attention being paid to actually investing in architecture and it while it may only be a, a, a retail precinct you know it's incredibly popular I, I think I think you would have to say that that's had a seismic impact on the local design scene because all of a sudden there is now a place in Brisbane where people can go and experience high quality architecture in a way that's that's engaging. It's kind of tangible to people. It, it kind of it, it's experientially very rich, and you know that that undoubtedly has ramifications for a whole bunch of other projects in and around Brisbane where people are suddenly um, having their eyes open to what the potential of architecture might be. Mm. And a competition, I think, has a similar potential to to take what is essentially an extremely risky and therefore highly conservative market and encourage it to take greater risks. Mm. And when those risks are taken, you know, sometimes obviously they don't pay off, but more often than not, if people engage really good designers, really great architects, they do get outcomes that raise standards and lead to benefits that for someone who's not trained in the architectural field are incredibly difficult to envisage until it's built for them. And, you know, even as architects, we're often surprised by the outcomes that we get. We may have an idea that something will work, but it's not until it's built that you actually can stop and reflect on it, see how the other people interact with it that you realise that that idea that's been kicking around in the back of your head is actually incredibly potent and could be something that's replicable or could be something that can raise standards more generally. So, you know, the, the competition is an agent for change and as a way of sort of breaking that cycle of just repeating the same approach to a retail space that, mm. you know, Brisbane was in for, I think, a, a decade or two prior to James Street, I think is, in, is incredibly strong and is something that, that, you know, doesn't come around too often, but it's something that could definitely be taken advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that kind of brings us neatly back to the overarching question, which is 
how do architecture competitions make projects better and do they? And I think we've, you know, discussed a number of examples in which they do, but part of what we talked about is it, it depends on potentially the convener or the situation. I know that the NGV competition, part of what might make it interesting is the engagement with the public. Do you think that it as a competition has been successful in engaging, you know, with the community? I mean, the competition now has been running for a number of years, and I'd, I'd say that it's very well known within the architectural community. COVID hasn't helped with uh, for people uh, interstate in, engaging with the program, where, where we might once have ended up in Melbourne a couple of times a year and invariably visited the NGV to have a look around. That just hasn't been happening lately, sadly. So it's difficult for me to get a sense of what the impact might be for people in Melbourne um, who actually get to visit the, the NGV on a regular basis. But I, I mean, we have to assume that it would be quite exciting. And whenever I have been at the NGV and there's a pavilion in situ, it's, it's always been sort of bustling with, with people. So it, it does seem like quite a successful program from, from what I can tell. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. I, I think we kind of I've touched on that earlier, perhaps in terms of assessing the, the value of it. I think it's, it's a profound offering. I think it's a brilliant initiative. Glad, glad to donate some of our time and energy and excitement in terms of engaging with it. And I think there's there's nothing like experiencing architecture to, to sell architecture. And Andrew, Andrew talked earlier about the Sydney Opera House, this building that everyone in Sydney has visited. That is one of the most incredible buildings on the planet. And that that has to have an impact. Brisbane, Brisbane doesn't really have a kind of an, an iconic single building in that way. The, our sort of design marbles are sort of more widely spread and often in private hands. The sort of remarkable parts of our city tend to be, for, for me anyway, sub suburban suburban streets and private houses. I think we, you know, we do that really, really well. We're probably a little more hit and miss with with public buildings, but. And I think that has definitely had an impact on on Brisbane, and and just and you feel it when you're interacting with clients, the kind of ideas that they come to you with, and the kind of level of ambition that they come to you with. And often, you know, we work fairly frequently with people who've lived interstate, and very often the kind of references that they have for the, the design standard that they want their project to meet come from those experiences of being interstate or overseas because those are the places where they're able to actually occupy and experience buildings of a really high quality. Mm. And and so, so that, that sort of process of actually being able to visit something, the, the opportunity that the NUV Pavilion provides people, I think is really important. And it sort of battles against the, the sort of entrenched conservatism that I spoke about earlier. But, but I think also that we have a fundamental problem as architects in communicating with people outside of the profession. Mm. It's, it's really hard to do and it's really hard to couch architecture in terms that would actually engage people in a, in a conversation about architecture without sending them to sleep. I don't, I don't have the answer to that. You know, it's, it's really difficult. It's really hard to be serious about architecture and, you know, have a serious conversation about it that, that doesn't turn people off. I, I think, you know, you, you invariably you sort of head in that direction quite quickly once you start talking about architecture. And so there's really, you know, until we can figure that out, yeah. there's really no substitute for having great pieces of design that people can actually experience. And, you know, I, I look forward to a, uh, a point in time where you can turn on N MTV Cribs <laughs> and you can see inside the, the, the private house of, you know, a star rapper or an actress or something, and they're not living in a mock Tudor mansion. You know, <laughs> they, they actually live in a house that is, you know, has some design credentials. It's it sort of, it, it remains shocking to me and it's kind of the ultimate barometer for for the, 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 the sort of predicament of architecture that the most extreme and outrageous people in our society that in every other way are on the cutting edge of culture and design choose to live in essentially a bloated project home. So often, you know, you see Snoop Dogg's house and you're like, man, this is, this is not the house that I would design for Snoop Dogg. So you know, we've got to, we've, we've got to, through, through the stories that we tell about architecture, 
through changing our procurement models and finding better ways to, to share design with the public, get to a point where Snoop Dogg lives in a Snoop Dogg house yeah. rather than a weird-ass project home that's just exactly the same as any other project home but just blown up on the printer by 10 times. I, I, think, this, I think this is a great example of, where, of the benefit of collaboration and, and how a, a kind of a conversation can end up here. And it's kind of it's representative of the design process as well. But I think I think Aaron, there's, there's hope for you. Like, have you have you seen Kanye West's new house? Oh no, I that, haven't. Um, no, Olgiati is designing for him. Have a look at his Instagram, and, and you'll be your face in in rappers or in um, popular music will be restored. Oh, okay. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you both for taking time to to come on to the podcast you know it's been an enjoyable conversation and um, I think that everyone else will agree this has been Hearing Architecture proudly sponsored by Brickworks thank you so much for listening thank you so much to our guests in this episode Aaron Peters from Vokes and Peters and Andrew Scott from Panov Scott we're very grateful for your time and we can't wait to see what you produce in your next competition that you either choose to work on in collaboration or separately. We'd also like to thank Sam McQueenie from Imagining Queensland for organising and moderating the interview. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Sam McQueenie, Genevieve Vella, Myron Montero, Rohanna Fullerton and Bradio Tool, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.